Hey, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us this morning at church. Uh, my name is Matthew. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Eastside. Today's Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week. It's the, um, the most important and significant week for the Christian year. And we're going to look at a text today that talks about what we remember and commemorate this week. So if you have Bibles and you want to follow along, we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it and then pray and then we'll jump in. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, we, <coughs> we thank you so much for... This week, we thank you for what it reminds us of, um, of what you were willing to do to make us your own. God, help us to be fully present as we enter this week. We pray, Lord, that the things we hear and read, see today, God, that they would, <clears throat> they would um, compel us to look to you all week long. And to not take our eyes off of you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, it is Holy Week. And um, that's, you know, when I grew up in church, we didn't celebrate Holy Week necessarily. We'd, we wouldn't have called it Holy Week. Um, it was just the week before Easter. But it's, it's actually one of, the, it's one of my favorite uh, things about, the, about being a Christian is that we actually get to follow along with Jesus almost day by day. It's like there's more data about how Jesus spent these seven days than, than like any other week in the Bible. And so we, we have the chance to really walk closely with Jesus. And of course, today is the day that he rode into Jerusalem um, and was greeted with a lot of fanfare and, and so on. And then five days later, he would walk out of those same city gates, but this time carrying his own cross to his execution. So we come to our text today. It's an incredibly important, a very beautiful text. One of the high watermarks of the, of the New Testament, um, for sure. And yet it's important for us to, to see at the very beginning that what's going on in this text is Paul is talking about division in the church. He's, he's, addressing, um, he's addressing things that are separating people. In fact, if you keep reading in Philippians, you'll see in chapter four that there was a lot of infighting, even among the leadership, that even the people who were most powerful and prominent in the church, that they were actually squabbling a lot. And Paul is addressing that, but he doesn't simply address it by saying like, um, hey, you guys need to get along, like find some common ground, grow a relationship out of the things you have in common, like move towards one another, treat one another the way that you wish the other would treat you. He doesn't simply do that. He roots and anchors his whole call to unity in the work of Jesus on the cross. He says, this is what actually will motivate you. In fact, he says, you have the ability to have in your mind the things that Jesus had in his mind as he underwent his incarnation and his death, which is pretty cool. It's pretty astonishing for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, scholars 
are almost unanimous in believing that this is a hymn that Paul is quoting. He's not writing a hymn. He's quoting what was a common church song at this point. And this letter is written 15, 20 years after the life of Christ. So within the, a decade or two of the time of Jesus, there were already hymns that were in the church, which isn't surprising. But those hymns did a couple of things. First of all, they were claiming that Jesus was God. This wasn't something that was tacked on years later, you know, under Constantine. This, this was part of original Orthodox Christianity. And second, that they seemed to actually be able to claim that they understood what was going on in the mind of Jesus at this time as well. That there was like a, an awareness or an, um, a knowledge of Jesus's inner world that was passed on to the early church from the apostles. And Paul uses this knowledge and leverages it to encourage his readers um, to move towards one another in love. So first of all, let's just look at the hymn. Let's just kind of break it apart bit by bit. He says, have this mind, uh, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and it's a really important little word. The word is morphe. And it's this idea that he had the appearance of God, but also that he had the nature of God. It's a really significant word. In fact, early on in church history, this verse was used to, um, and the Greek of it was used to actually dispel some of the Christological controversies and to say, no, no, from the beginning, we've always understood that Jesus was not simply one who was like God or who looked like God, but he had as his nature God himself. And yet it says that this equality with God is not something that he sought to um, uh, exploit or maybe you've seen uh, to grasp this idea of like to hold on tightly. Jesus wasn't using his divinity uh, for his own ends, but he was doing exactly what Paul says we should be doing, which is considering others more important than yourself and looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others, which is why he, uh, Paul says, he emptied himself. He emptied, the, the word literally is like he emptied his glory. That's, that's what it's like, the, the, the root of it. He emptied out like the things that made him majestic. He emptied out his beauty. He emptied out um, his, his, his sovereignty. He emptied himself. He made himself uh, weak and small. And he took on the form, and there's the word again, morphe, of a servant. And what's kind of cool is if, if you look at the Greek, it's like he is in the form of God. It's in the present tense, meaning it has kind of always been and always will be. But there was a moment, this is in the past tense, where he took on the form of a servant. So he became a human being. There was a time uh, when Jesus was not a human being, where the son of God, where the Christ was not human, did not have skin. And then there was a moment when he did, um, when he took on in real time in history, the flesh of human being. Martin Luther writes, the mystery of Christ, that he sunk himself into our flesh is beyond all human understanding, that he would choose to sink himself in our skin and in our bones. C.S. Lewis has an essay called The Grand Miracle where he talks about this. He says, the picture of the incarnation, he says, imagine like a diver um, stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, and then down through the green, warm, sunlit waters into the pitch black, cold, freezing waters, down into the mud and, and the slime, and then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and sunlit water, and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. The thing, Lewis says, is human nature, but associated with it, all nature the new universe. Jesus said in John chapter three, that nobody can ascend to heaven except the one who has descended from heaven, the son of man. 
that what we see when we see Jesus took the form of a servant is there's this like wild, incredible descent down, down, down to the very bottom. And he became obedient, Paul says, to death, even to death on a cross. And there's really no... um, way that you and I can appreciate the horror that those words would have struck in the heart of a first century reader who has seen with their own eyes an actual crucifixion. But unless you never left your home, you would have seen a crucifixion because the Romans loved to use them to both terrorize the people as well as to uh, publicly shame and, and, and kill their enemies. Crucifixion was a an utterly terrible way to die. Hanging sometimes for days, people would hang there, um, not just for hours, in public places where they could be made of a spectacle of parched tongue, like um, barely living carrion for birds, naked, incontinent, gasping for air, and having to make the decision moment by moment whether or not to push against the nails in the feet to lift you up to get a breath, or to pull on the nails in the hands to lift you up to get a breath before slumping again under your own weight, exhausted but unable to sleep, wishing for death but unable to die, and praying for the mercy of a soldier who would come and shatter the bones in your legs so you could finally slump one final time and suffocate. This is what Jesus did on Good Friday. This is what he endured. And this is what we think on this week. All of Lent has been building to this moment where Jesus Christ not only becomes human, but becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christians for centuries have taken, especially those few days right before Easter, Good Friday and Holy Saturday, and they fasted as a way of sort of in a very small way, entering into the sufferings of Jesus. I would just encourage you this week to find ways to enter into the sufferings of Jesus. This might sound silly to some of you, but one of the things I do every year is I watch The Passion of the Christ. I don't watch it because I want to watch it. Um, I watch it because I feel like I, that it's good for me. It's good for me to be that close to the suffering of Jesus for that long, to not be able to just ignore it or to turn away from it. But Paul goes on to say, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord. So in other words, he says that because this has happened, Jesus has been exalted almost, it seems, to a place higher than where he was before when he was equal with God, that he's been given an even greater name, that now the whole universe will one day unanimously declare that Jesus Christ is unlike any other, that he is Lord. It doesn't matter whether or not you're a Christian. It doesn't matter whether or not you're religious. It doesn't matter that there is a day in the future, according to the scriptures, when every single person will say with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. And for me, I'll just say that is a word of incredible hope for all people, I think. That is something to hold on to, that one day everyone will see Jesus for who he is. So that's the hymn. The question is, again, how did we get here? Oh, yes, that's right. We got here because we're talking about division in the church. We're talking about uh, infighting. We're talking about what's going on that's keeping people from being able to love one another. And Paul says, well, if you understood what Jesus had done for you, you'd be able to see one another with different eyes. He gives the incarnation to you and me as a picture for us. Um, 
to understand what we're supposed to be doing towards one another. Incarnation, uh, to, in, to be incarnate is to be present to, in real like physical ways, to be present to the realities around you and to let them touch you and shape you, that connect you to them in body and soul and mind to your neighbors. Incarnation is sinking myself into the skin of my neighbors for their sake. The church father Irenaeus wrote, the word of God, Jesus Christ, out of his boundless love became what we are so that he might make us what he is. So Jesus Christ, who is fully God, comes and becomes full man, perfect man, so that you and I could become perfect women and men in his image. He came to make us reflections of himself. He came to make us, in Lewis's image, great divers, people who have been impacted and loved and reached by the incarnation and so who now go out and love and reach others through our own incarnation to them. He didn't come to make us anything other than what he is or to do something in us anything other than to produce in us the very energy and life and motive and that was true in himself. But here's what's kind of, I think, amazing about the incarnation. It's... Um, God wasn't acting outside of his character. There's no incongruity between like how God sees himself and his willingness to become a servant who dies on a cross. There's actually com complete congruity in God's heart around that because God's, um, God's awareness of his own glory is also an awareness of his own, um, is, is also embodied in his humility, The incarnation, in the incarnation, we need to realize just how compatible it is with how God sees himself. God doesn't act counter to his nature. It's not like God was something and then he, he had to suddenly have low self-esteem or think differently about himself. He has always been the kind of God who would lower himself like this. This is who God is. This is what he's like. He doesn't need uh, to join a self-esteem support group. He is fully aware of his holiness and his glory and his uniqueness. But what could be more consistent with the God of the universe than being willing to become a human being? To being willing to become a poor servant of a human being, dying a slave's death. And on the flip side, what could be more counter to our intrinsic nature as God bearers, as image bearers, than when we're constantly trying to one-up one another, or when we're always picking little fights or when we're choosing to think the worst about another, or when we're reveling in another person's failures. Those are the very things that show that we have moved so far from what we were created to be because we were created to be, just like God, great divers. Or to say it another way, what the incarnation shows us is that if we're thinking rightly about ourselves, about others, we understand that there is no one in my life right now of whom I am, uh, that I am better than. There's just no one in my life that I'm better than. There's no one that I can pass on the street that I am better than. Not even that person that you're thinking of right now. There is literally not a person walking on this earth that I can elevate myself above and say, but you are worse than I am. There is no one unworthy of me being willing to dive to the bottom for. One of the things I've heard Tim Keller say for years that I've has always, always struck a, a real chord in me. He says, you know you understand the gospel when you begin to respect the poor. Not to tolerate the poor, not to feel pity for the poor, but to respect. And you and I are never more like God than when we become 
unimpressive and common for the sake of others. As a parent with little kids, I am, um, I'm constantly like uh, amazed by the things that uh, derail them. They seem so trivial, right? Or if you have teenagers, you got some teenagers, or maybe you work with kids or your teacher. I mean, the smallness of their problems is just, it's like, really? Like, you're so upset about that? Um, of course, I think it's worth saying that to the father of a, of a family fleeing violence in their homeland and living in a makeshift refugee camp, my problems probably feel pretty small to that person too. What if we just stopped thinking like that? That our problems were bigger, or that we were more important, or that the things that were going on in my life demanded, uh, I don't know, more respect. That you're, that you're a small person or you have little things that you're dealing with. What if we weren't always comparing ourselves to others? What if we weren't always trying to one-up the other? Sometimes in traffic, I'm in a hurry, and I'll get behind a person who's not in a hurry, and I'll get very frustrated because I'm like, don't you understand that I'm in a hurry? And then sometimes I'm in traffic, and I'm not in a hurry, and someone comes up behind me really fast, and they're in a hurry, and I think, who do you think you are? Why are you so important? <laughs> like, we're always like, comparing ourselves to one another, trying to see like, where we fit, if you read the Gospels, you discover that God's son is far less concerned with your personal piety than he is concerned with your, than the way that you relate to other people. He says to the Pharisees multiple times these words, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I just want to say I am increasingly troubled today and have been for a while now by the trend that I see in the American church, in the evangelical church, even in the Anglican church, our capacity and willingness to tear at one another, to destroy one another, to lob grenades. Denominations are splitting right now over statements like Black Lives Matter and critical race theory, or whether or not it's appropriate for a Christian to use a modifier like gay or queer to describe themselves. Because people have decided that we need to draw lines where lines don't have to be drawn and die on hills that no one is asking them to die on and making enemies of their family members. In the name of quote unquote being right, we are willing to destroy one another. And some people are so fed up with the whole thing that they're leaving the church. And understandably, every week I, I read about people who have left. They're called ex-vangelicals. <laughs> People who are just so done with the church and with its power plays and with its corruption and with its immorality and with its sanctimoniousness and its hypocrisy that they just say, God must be somewhere other than the church. I'll go find him, her, it somewhere other than this place, wandering away. And I recognize that probably even some of you feel on that fence yourselves right now. It's a very difficult thing to be a part of an institution that is so publicly and embarrassingly broken. I also believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ promised that the church is the, is the way and the mechanism through which his kingdom would come on the earth and that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church and that it's something worth loving and fighting for and even dying for. We live in a world of hostility all you have to do is turn on cable news or scan through social media or read comments under a news article to realize that the fabric that is holding our society together right now is animosity and hatred. It's troubling to say it mildly. 
And the left is not immune to it. The right is not immune. Religious, irreligious. Hostility, hatred, bigotry, prejudice, dehumanization. This is how we talk to one another. And the church is in the thick of it. The only, the only way through it is to follow in Jesus' steps. The only way through it is self-emptying. Emptying of self, of my glory, for the sake of others. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up a cross and follow me. This Good Friday, as we move towards Jesus in the perfection and the completeness of his sacrifice, let us remember that he calls us to the same thing. Towards our enemies. Towards people that we do not love, that we do not respect. He calls us to be people who are willing to sacrifice our wishes, our desires, our comfort, our privilege, for another's sake. This is actually the way to exaltation. This is the way to the life that you're wanting. Self-protection is the way of the world. Self-preservation at all costs is a sign of the times. I'm thinking about this a lot right now in the context in particular around race, just because I'm finding in myself like a reticence and a hesitancy to just... to continue down a road that is asking me to repent again and again. It's... And I know from talking to many people in our church that there's a sense of like, how far are we going to let this take us? How much are we going to be willing to say or to, to change or to do? And I would just say like, I think Jesus shows us like you go all the way to the bottom. You're willing to give up everything for the sake of others. You choose to incarnate, to put yourself in the skin of your neighbors for their sake, and it will cost you. Choosing to put yourself in the skin of your neighbors will cost you. How do we know that we're going to do this right? We don't. But we can say this about any, any, any time that we choose another person. That Jesus calls us into the way of love and of humility and of self-emptying. He calls us to shirk self-preservation, self-focused, and to be people who consider the needs of others as more important than our own. Who are the people around you right now that need you to consider their needs more important than your own? This is the way of Jesus. It's what we're called to do. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would put those people and those opportunities and those faces, those places before our eyes and our mind and our heart right now. And you'd give us the courage to look at them full in the face and to be willing to lay down ourselves for others. God, I pray you'd give us a spirit that actually finds um, comfort and sacrifice and the comfort comes from knowing that we're doing it with you that we're just walking on the road that you've already walked today lord as we begin this holy week we ask for eyes that are ever on the cross of jesus that pay attention to the way he suffers for us that pay attention to the way that he prays for us even his enemies that we would be a people who learn from jesus how to die And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Amen. Hope to see you in a moment. We'll be outside for communion and we'd love to see you out there. Grace and peace to you. You are loved.